0: Welcome to the Faces podcast. We're a Christian and Muslim charity working to build resilience in faith communities against child sexual exploitation and other forms of harm. We'll be talking about what faith and interfaith work means to us and how we embed an inclusive and authentic approach throughout our work.
1: Welcome to our podcast today. Uh, Today, um, myself, Nigel, uh, I'm joined by Melissa and uh, Courtney. Uh, Courtney last joined us uh, back in February when we were discussing refugees and today we're looking at that subject again um, a few months on and looking at how that's developed and also some of the things that are developing as a result of that and so um, I hope we can have a good chat today. Um, Just thinking about things in February we, we were looking at the number of people in hotels around the UK Um, And especially in Luton at that time. Um, Since then, there's been many other towns experiencing um, people in hotels and looking at how people are welcomed into society and into um, the places around them. And um, things have moved a little bit. The government's made some moves for fast tracking people. And they've made statements like that. They've also been very, some very strong statements about people on boats. And there's been a lot of um, people speaking into this um, over the last few months. So I just sort of wondered, um, are, are, the hotels as a temporary solution is that looking more temporary or are people being moved out of hotels um just wondering where the situation is wondered if uh, maybe courtney you could just sort of say how things have moved in those months maybe
2: sure um before i start thanks for having me back um yeah it's it's really difficult to say uh what the future looks like in terms of hotels i know that there's a lot of rhetoric by the government and media saying that this is you know absolutely now an extremely short-term process and that they're looking at alternative means whether it's the barge that they've now recently announced that they're going to Try and make um, into suitable living accommodation for refugees. If it's um the processes to fast track people, you know, they're, they're trying different strategies to try and reduce the number of people that have to be housed in hotels. But on the ground, we haven't seen any changes um, in terms of reduction in use of hotels. Um, if anything, contracts seem to be coming to an end, ones that were in place around two years is kind of the mark that we're seeing that hotels have been contracted for. Uh, and then it's just a shift to a different hotel. Um, so within our region of Bedfordshire, we've had a new hotel open where previous hotels in London have closed. And it's just kind of a moving of people rather than an actual solving um, of the problem.
1: A sort a of shuffling of the deck um, rather than anything moving forward. Wow. Yeah. Um, and all the time with this threat of Rwanda that's never really happened uh, in the background as well. Um, so, yeah, very interesting. And so, um, yeah, so things have moved around. And during that time, I'm guessing um, uh, there may be more people involved uh, than there were before or less. Um, there, there seems to be people very keen on helping um, refugees around uh, my area, um, you know, to do to link up with, um, you know, different centers during the day and things like that, which is better than what happened at first. Um, but I'm just wondering, are, have things moved on um, in terms of that? Are there more people involved Are things better set up than they were? Um, you know, are voluntary organizations getting involved more or less, or was it an initial surge and then it pulled back? Or, um, just wondering what what your experience is of that. I'm not, you know, you don't know everything about everywhere, but just in Bedfordshire, kind of what, what have you observed is probably the best thing to ask.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you said, I don't know what's happening nationally. I just know what we experience. And I think when new sites open um, and kind of populations increase in areas in Bedfordshire, um, we've seen definitely a kind of surge of volunteer support, which is a natural progression that you would have if you've got a new community that have just come to a location. Um, Really kind of grassroots uh, community groups come together. And we've seen kind of an increase in collaboration at the early stage which when I first started, um, you know, in the sector, it, it was a little bit disjointed. But now it seems to be the immediate thing is a community group will come together, a kind of leading charity or organisation that is has the most experience will try to coordinate all of those responses. Um, and then... People meet the uh, emergency needs, which is usually clothing um, and just a bit of advice and guidance about the local area. And then we do see a kind of um de-escalation and scaling back of support uh, in the community context because people naturally start to get a bit settled. They investigate the area for themselves and find, you know, things that meet their needs. So there's not that urgent, urgent need for a lot of community investment. Um, but I think, yeah, so it's difficult because in some of the locations that these hotels are now being shifted to. So, for example, in the big cities where the contracts are coming to an end and the new hotels are being commissioned, they seem to be um, increasingly in kind of rural areas. So we have one that's around let um, me think, I think it's about eight miles north of Bedford. And it's really, really isolated to the point where there is actually... Um, a minibus on site to take people to and from any sort of facilities because there, there really is nothing um so in that sense the community response and the local volunteer response has been really intense and it probably will be for the foreseeable because they're, they're completely isolated in that location um so it does seem that the voluntary support seems to come in waves and and meet the needs but yeah we've got all sorts of kind of community investment from organizations to just individuals that get in touch and say how can I help I have this this and this or my skill set is this what can I do so yeah it's really reassuring to see
1: that's great and um, I'm guessing churches and mosques and religious organizations are are very key in this Um, would you would you say that's the case
2: 100% yeah a lot of the time in, in our collaboration when new sites open the churches or the places of faith are at the forefront of kind of coordinating those community efforts and you know volunteer bases usually come from the the faith groups so definitely
1: and, and I understand um, you and Melissa have been working together on um, trying to uh, look at courses for volunteers and, and helping people. Do you want to say a little bit about that, either of you or both of you?
0: Yeah, but before we do, I was just thinking as you're talking about the um, movement of people and how actually that often happens in um, uh, you know a, a large number of people where the hotel is closing down and being moved to another location. I was just thinking about how much this really makes people more vulnerable and, um, you know, already vulnerable people who have been through a range of traumatic experiences and come from, um, you know, having experienced a lot of problems that we would have, we would put into a kind of safeguarding um, category already. But when, we're mo- when you're moving someone out of a place where they may have some stability, where they have relationships, they understand and have familiarity with the context and support structures around them, when you take that from them, you know, we're really creating a vulnerable um, environment uh, for them to enter into. And, you know, they're at risk of exploitation, um, as well as hostility that we've seen and everything that comes with that. Um, And it does seem to not be something that's taken into account. You know, we often hear that the message is people are moved and placed in areas where there's been a lot of consideration about this being the best place to do that. But it seems like, the actual well-being of the people that we're talking about is not what's being considered it's much more of a sort of financial and political um you know game rather than thinking about what's best for the refugees that are in the situations um, that are having to be managed and so in terms of the the safeguarding course we've been looking at we're putting something together for people that we know are trying their best to mobilize and organize and respond to the massive need that we've seen in Luton and the surrounding areas as you've touched on, Nigel, um, because people do want to help. You know, people are really um, sincere in their, their, their wanting to help people that they see are in need and wanting to, like you said, Courtney, offer what they can, whether it's skills or sort of practical um, things, tangible things, Excuse me. Um, And these people, you know, all of the organisations and individuals that are involved deserve to be supported. Um, And if we can feed into that by offering safeguarding expertise, offering practical tools that can be used, offering a space, uh, facilitating a space that helps them unpack what their processes are, how they can be kind of improved and how we can make sure that safeguarding, the safeguarding element, which needs to be an integral element um, in the Operations of supporting refugees and asylum seekers. Um, if that can be robust and um, uh, you know make sure that that functions well, then that can also put an ease on the rest of the, um, the, the, the you know the the rest of the operations that are happening to support them. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're hoping to have a course ready um, by the end of next month to pilot and um, with local organisations. Um, and then we'll hopefully be able to see kind of improvement of, of how equipped volunteers are to, to work with refugees and asylum seekers and make sure that there's no safeguarding um, safeguarding issues falling through the gaps, essentially. And that the systems are really robust to make sure that both the refugees and asylum seekers themselves and also the volunteers and organisations are protected
1: Yeah, That's very good. And and I think uh, it sort of almost flies in the face of what you were saying at the beginning of what you said there of people being moved from place to place, making them more vulnerable, bringing a course in that helps people in how they care for people better and also helps the safety of those people themselves is exactly flying in the face of um, the the, just move people around doesn't matter kind of approach and has a lot of humanity, a lot of care in it. And uh, I don't you know. I think some of the elements that are specific to this, apart from normally just caring for people um, in my involvement with homelessness, uh, very often there's a lot of people who want to do good, but by doing good in the end, don't do as much good as they think they are. They buy a tent for someone when actually that person needs their mental health addressed by a team rather than a tent in that location at that time. And so there's this balance of how people are cared for and how the best way to go about that is. Um, And and so I've seen that in other settings. Uh, How would you say in this setting there are particulars of how people need care or volunteers need to consider things that they might not otherwise consider that would be useful for them to know or to benefit from without, you know, I mean, there's a whole course to go on, but I'm just thinking some of the elements of that, what is important people know or what elements are important that you would say be specific to this um, refugees?
0: I think just sort of fundamentally, um a lot of the time when people uh see uh, an event or a, a place that they can go and give some of their time give a couple of hours a week to um it can be seen as uh and and it should be in, in in the sense of being accessible and and allowing anyone who wants to help to to be able to help um in the way that they can it's it's casual and it's kind of I can just show up and sort of be doing a few things on the day um but really, you know, if we're really going to take safeguarding seriously, it means that everyone who's involved in that project um, understands what safeguarding is, understands um, what abuse can look like, understands what a disclosure is, because it's not necessarily just, you know, this thing happened to me, but being able to read other signs, being able to understand when disclosures might be withdrawn. Um, and and knowing what to do if that Uh, Concern. So even if it's not a disclosure, but if it's a concern that someone has because there's signs of of types of abuse happening um, understanding what to do with that, who it's reported to internally within the organisation, what the processes are in reporting that, writing things down, recording it, where that's going to be reported um, and where that goes afterwards. You know, how the safeguarding lead ideally is going to follow that up, what local organisations they can contact for advice and support and national ones as well places that they can seek advice specifically for um, safeguarding issues that might arise um, in a refugee context. Um, and so all of that can seem quite a lot for a volunteer who just wants, you know, I say just, I'm, I'm downplaying it, but you know, just wants to give a couple of hours and um, a week to support a project but actually it really will help them in the long run um to feel more equipped and to feel more capable in the role that they're doing um, and you know potentially support them in other areas of 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 work uh, as well you know it, it will help them beyond the, their their kind of initial volunteer role there Um I think generally it's that it's that mind frame isn't it it's that mindset shift to actually seeing safeguarding not as uh, safeguarding and also the the procedural side of things not as oh it's a you know it's a burden or oh, it's a bit complicated but being trying to break that down so that it's understood that it can be simple um, and that it's really really worthwhile and necessary
1: yeah thanks Melissa and um, Courtney anything you'd like to add into that
2: no, I think Melissa has covered it all really, really well. You know, I was thinking as she was talking, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, I would have said that. So, yeah. So, thanks a lot there, man.
1: <laughs> That's very, very good. Um, an ace shot, as it would be in tennis, isn't it? In that, there's no return. Um, it's, so, um, looking at that safeguarding, um, does that include, because uh, I imagine in this, that criminal gangs and situations like that have been a problem in this area. You know, um, people have disappeared from places, and and there's been some of that in the news. Is that part of volunteers trained to to look out for some of that, or or to help refugees defend themselves from that? Um, is there any of that in the in the training, or is yeah? It made- so we'll
0: be looking at we'll be looking at a range of case studies that. Um, you know illustrate different types of abuse that can happen including exploitation including criminal exploitation and organized crime gang so that will be a way of really giving a kind of tangible story for the the people on the, the course to look at and understand and see how it might apply to their own situation and the people that they um work with so hopefully we'll have um kind of a, a good uh, way to let that sink in, um, let people read these stories and case studies and, and kind of go away and remember them beyond the, the safeguarding so they can, you know, maybe, hope, hopefully not ever having to, but maybe be able to make that connection in future to say, actually, that's what this might be. Uh, you know, I've seen this, this these things coming together and actually that could mean that this type of abuse is happening and knowing what to do with it at that point as well, knowing where to go with those concerns um, and how to take action.
1: Yeah, so so ongoing protection all around just seems a really wise thing to do. Um, But I'm also just thinking about the disclosures as well that you mentioned there, Melissa, and maybe Courtney wants to chip in on this as well. But um, I just imagine people travelling through several different countries um, who've been in awful kinds of situations in some of that, there must be some horror stories there that people, once they begin to feel comfortable and secure, can begin talking about. And I'm imagining some of those settings, um, there's a fair bit of horrendous content that some of these volunteers may encounter, and I'm guessing you're helping prepare them for some of that. Um, but also, um, you know, some of these events are happening outside of our country. Um, hopefully, you know, and 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 so, how do are those followed through? They're fed to authorities, but I'm just wondering how that works through, um, and how people work through some of that. So I'm just sort of asking a bit more about the process, um, and also some of what people will encounter.
2: So I mean. To speak to the need for this course I think you've highlighted something really important and one of the the big motivation um motivative drivers for us to develop the course is um that that area around disclosures in the sense of you know in any you, you as you said it could be a situation where people start to build trust start to feel more comfortable um and then they disclose information but in my experience by representing or presenting as someone that's there to give support. Sometimes that's enough for people to want to just express and tell you about what's happened to them um, and ask for help. And, you know, this is why I think it's so important that we're developing this course to give people the tools and skills and knowledge to really know what to do with this, but also to make kind of organizations and groups aware of what they need to consider in terms of looking after and supporting their their volunteers, because Mm. it can really come out of the blue. it can hit you hard um and Whether you are affiliated with an organisation or not, if you are professional, if you have experience or not, sometimes people see you as a professional, whether that's true or not, and just disclose things because they're they're desperate. So that's been a big motivator for us to actually put this course together and make it really accessible and comprehensive. But I'm sure Melissa can explain more about the safeguarding specifics around uh, disclosure. But yeah, thanks for touching on that. It's really important.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to pick up on the same thing in terms of the psychological well-being of the volunteers themselves in potentially and often likely um, hearing really difficult stories um, and yes there's a level of action that might need to be taken in terms of, or will need to be taken in terms of supporting the refugees and asylum seekers and um, whether it's sort of um, counselling mental health kind of well-being support or it's more unpacking um, you know abuse that's happened and and how to action, take action on that um, but it's but the volunteers themselves, it, that really can't be something that's missed um, in, in any kind of um, project or response that's happening. Is making sure that your volunteers are looked after. Um, we had a really good example um, of a local um, group that's been doing uh, work for years supporting refugees and asylum seekers of them having those volunteer catch-up meetings. And they need to be regular so that you know that if, if there is something that your volunteer wants to share or needs support with, you're inviting them to, to come into that space and explain that rather than, um, you know, it maybe not being mentioned if you didn't create that space otherwise. So something like that in itself is a really good um, example of something that's generally simple to to kind of put together and make sure is regularly kind of in the calendar to, to have. Um, but just those regular catch up so that you know that, people have a space to say, actually, this happened or I heard this and I'm struggling with it. I don't know what to do with it. Um, uh, you know, that's just one way of making sure you're not missing uh, where people, including your volunteers might need
1: extra support. Yeah. And, and, and imagining by, um, feeding things into authorities there is a chance that even if people are moved from hotel to hotel that is recorded and can follow them but i'm getting i've seen systems break down in in many settings recently um and and so i'm just sort of thinking oh, there ways that that can be so say someone um, divulges something that has happened to them and then they moved from a, to another hotel um you know and and you know, is there a possible linkage where counseling or something else could follow up on that, or are we in a system that's just we don't know? Um, but it, it's how some of those things for the person I'm, I'm thinking, not just the you know, the volunteers will be static, mm-hmm. hopefully staying in locations, but but sometimes if they're moving hotels or things like that, or moving it on into other settings, um is there an ability to continue any care for the person divulging what's happened to them?
2: Yeah. So it, it does depend on um, the situation, the context and where it's been reported. Uh, but the home office operates a charity called Migrant Help, Um mm. I won't say too much about it. People can form their own opinions. Um, But technically, you should be reporting safeguarding issues through that charity. um, And then they should be recording it with the Home Office, with the accommodation providers. And that should provide the kind of trail, um, regardless of where people are moved, that should be a clear mechanism that allows people to be supported wherever they go. Um, I said I wouldn't say too much about it, but in my experience, we've had... um, people with severe mental health problems with um you know suicidal ideation and intent and and really serious issues um safeguarding issues that have been reported through that charity and in one instance they didn't call back for 2 weeks after reporting something linked to suicide so whether so on paper yes these mechanisms are there uh, but whether they actually transpire and work the way that they should is a whole another another story um but if people obviously if they're engaged with the NHS yeah. for whatever care and support they need that's quite successful um if they're engaged with national charities and refugee support charities like the refugee council like care for calais and other um national organizations there's highly likely teams um across the country in different sites that people are you know large Mm -hmm. groups of refugees are so we would hope that some sort of care can be carried forward if it's reported in the right way
1: so it's important that the centers themselves that are helping or the organizations keep records themselves so that if the ball is dropped elsewhere, that, that continuity can be back, traced back and worked through. Is that something that's in the thinking as well?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, even today, Melissa and I have been discussing um, the, the development of this course and it was something that we we drew upon quite strongly is the internal need for record keeping and having a clear trail of what has been done um, is so valuable and important. And it can, you know, where we know things get dropped and, and balls get dropped across all organisations, but where this happens and we've got clear audit trails, it just makes it so much easier and hopefully more successful to pick back up.
1: So, sounds great. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how you see the course uh, going? So, um, I mean, it's not long now before it starts. Yeah. yeah. So I imagine uh, a whole group of people, um, say, in a setting who've been helping refugees all coming together for a training session. Um, I'm guessing they start with teas and coffees and then they settle down. Uh, wh- what happens next? Um, how, how would yeah. you see that flowing?
0: So, like all of our training courses, we really try to focus on facilitating conversation and learning between the participants because we know there's a lot of experience and expertise in the room, and actually there's so much value in just being able to facilitate that uh, learning between the the people attending. Um, so throughout the course, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of looking at case studies to really solidify um, the kinds of things that we've been talking about, um, and kind of make things less conceptual sort of just concepts and, and language but actually see how it really um translates into real life um so there'll be a lot of a lot of that there'll be a lot of um having the participants themselves discuss on the tables and and present ideas to each other um, and we're also going to be looking at quite a lot of kind of the cultural um, and uh, you know, in terms of the organisation, what kind of cultural values do they hold, um, and what are the intentions of, of of volunteers and things like that? So just really kind of share those ideas to make sure that people understand each other better, you know, and, and why they. Um, are in the role that they're doing, but also just get to unpack some ideas that might actually be, uh, there might actually be misunderstandings within, you know, in terms of how we view people, how we treat people and and things like that. Um, And again, like our other courses as well, we'll be looking at identity and we'll be looking at how um, ideas and perceptions around uh, groups of people can influence the way that we work and the way that we can respond to certain ideas because we hold uh, potentially... Um, you know misconceptions about how some groups are or how some types of abuse might present for example so there'll be a lot of that kind of stuff it is going to be a long course and we feel like it, it needs to be and it could probably be twice as long as we if we wanted it to be but we're looking at two four-hour sessions at the moment and mm-hmm. um, which can potentially be broken down in different ways Um And like our other courses, we intend for them to be CPD accredited um, so that there is a certificate and there is kind of an acknowledgement that participants get to go away with as well. Um, And we'll also be trying to tailor those uh, certain sections uh, in particular to uh, the organisations that are attending. So actually looking at policy and procedure that's specific to what what they are doing and how that can be improved um, quite practically. So it won't necessarily be that <clears throat> once they leave the course that's when the real work starts that's when the kind of changes might have to be made or certain things might have to be tweaked but we'll try to create space within the course itself to start the ball rolling on those things
1: and um how do you see the course Courtney are there any thing because I know you've looked into this area for a long time you've had care and compassion into this are there things in this course that you think, yeah, we're going to do this and it's really going to to hit home? Are there things you, you are excited about with this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just excited about the course as a whole, because in my years in the sector, I haven't found something that's as kind of tailored and bespoke to the refugee sector in a really accessible and local context um so I'm excited to be able to be part of the development and implementation of that so in a, as a whole it's very exciting and I think yeah about that but um in terms of the the practicalities I like the fact that um you know I've worked with volunteer organizations and just organizations in general where you don't really um get to know all of your colleagues uh, you don't get to know their motivations as why they volunteer especially in some of the, volu- the local volunteer organisations it's so busy and intense that it's kind of you might bump into each other or know a name but actually having a course where people can come and learn that about their colleagues is so valuable because it just puts everything else into context and it can really tick some boxes that people when it comes down to like Melissa said misunderstandings misinterpretations um, it can really help to, to bust some of those myths and misunderstandings So I think having a setting where we can have open, honest discussions, um, focused discussions about the true, you know, realities of asylum in the UK and how things work and, and the importance is a really rare and quite valuable experience. So, yeah, I'm just excited in general.
1: Yeah, Uh, I I think it just sounds good all around. It's good for the refugees, good for the volunteers and good for the the climate around that and the working together. Um, It's got a cohesiveness about it that just sounds very, very good. Um, So if people hear this and are thinking, yes, we want that um, kind of approach in our area or where we are, how do they get in touch? I'm guessing, Melissa, you've got some contact details that might be useful.
0: Yep. so um, our email is admin at faces.org.uk. That's the best way to get in touch with us um, about the refugee course, but also any of our other courses, which the details are on our website, on our training page at faces.org.uk.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you both, and I, I, I look forward to our next instalment, which will hopefully have some great stories of of what's come from these, as as well in other settings as well. But thank thank you both, and thank uh, you,
0: thank you very much.